Well, uh, one thing is for sure, uh, David isn't the giant killer he used to be. We're moving through a series of sermons on the life of David. And we're looking at David's life in installments. Uh, we've followed him, uh, indeed, since his first mention in the Bible uh, as a uh, young boy. Uh, in today's text, he's forced to retire from leading Israel's armies into battle. What do we see in today's text? Well, uh, in the space of just eight verses, we hear about four wars or uh, four battles. Um, each battle is against the Philistines and each battle has a villain. Ishbi, uh, uh, Benob, Saf, the brother of Goliath the Gittite and the huge man with 24 fingers and toes. And each of these four villains is a descendant uh, of uh, Rapha. The word Rapha appears four times. Traditionally, this word has been translated as giant. Uh, so then, for example, uh, the King James translation sees all four villains as sons of giants or as sons of the giant. The NIV translation uh, leaves the word untranslated because there is actually some doubt that that's what the word meant. However, nevertheless, the text is full of giant language. Amazingly heavy weapons, bronze spearheads weighing 3.5 kilograms, um, spears with shafts like weaver's rods, huge men with uh, six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, um, giants taunting Israel, uh, the armies of God. And the name Goliath appears in the text itself, just in case we haven't cottoned on, cottoned on yet. We, we are meant to be reminded. We're meant to be, supposed to be, remembering David's battle against Goliath, back when David was a young lad, barely a teenager. Goliath, the Philistine hero who himself, a huge man, had taunted, taunted the armies of Israel, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod and whose javelin point weighed 600 shekels, about, um, about 8 kilograms. But now in today's text... At the other end of David's life, each of these four villains, these four giants, is slain by an outstanding Israelite warrior, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Shebekai, the Hushite, the Hushathite. El-Hanan, son of Jair, the Bethlehemite, and Jonathan, son of Shimea. But David isn't on that list. Indeed, he's sidelined. Not only sidelined, but a bit of a liability. Abishai had to come to his rescue. It's, it's time for him to retire from the position of supreme commander of the armies of God 
fighting chief general. And all of this would have been extremely galling for poor old David for a number of reasons. Firstly, in in David's day, uh, indeed through most of history, leading armies into battle was it was what kings did. It was what kings were for. The whole point of having a king was that he led armies into battle. A king was both a saviour and lord. Uh, a lord, someone who commanded obedience, raised taxes, and created and led an army. Someone everyone agreed had to be obeyed. Lord and saviour, a man powerful enough, capable enough, charismatic enough to lead men possibly into their deaths, possibly um, to be killed, lead men into battle by example. Men following him literally in his footsteps into battle, into a, a reasonable hope of victory in order that the populace might be saved from their enemies, that the people might be saved from their enemies. That's why you had a king. And that's one reason why this would have been galling for poor old David. He's no longer able to fulfill that function. Another reason that this may have been tremendously galling for poor David was that with respect to this, David used to be spectacularly good at all of this. A once-in-a-generation fighter. He rose to fame. We, we remember, he, he rose to fame as an astonishingly successful and talented soldier. On the day he killed Goliath, back when he was really barely much more than a, than a boy, a young teenager perhaps, he was the only person in Israel not shaking in his boots, the only one who could do the job. And the early stories of David are full of references to his military capabilities. 1 Samuel 18.5 Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. David's prowess as a soldier became legendary. It was the stuff of songs, of folk songs. First Samuel 18.6 When the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. <coughs> and when Saul sent him out to kill a hundred Philistines, he killed two hundred. There was no one like him in skill, although Jonathan, his friend and the, the son of King, King Saul, Jonathan came close in terms of skill, and he was certainly David's equal in terms of courage and faith. But David was extraordinary. Now, David had stepped back briefly twice before from commanding uh, the armies of Israel, once for a bad reason, laziness, 
And that didn't end well. And once for a good reason, a strategic decision taken by his soldiers, um, but that had happened once before, but never before had there been any question as to his competence to lead armies into battle. But today we see something heart-wrenching. David retires from the battlefield forever. David's simply no longer got what it takes. Indeed, the Saviour has to be saved. Verse 15. Once again there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines and he became exhausted. And Ishi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new weapon, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. Well, by the grace and kindness of God, it's pretty clear that David has to retire from the field of combat. Uh, There are lots of signposts. Firstly, he just can't do the job. He can't do it anymore. It's exhausting. He no longer has the strength. Secondly, there are sufficient numbers of others who can do the job, who can slay the giants. Once upon a time, David was the only giant killer that Israel had. But now that there there are at least four, probably many. Third, his men with courage and candor, they make the decision for him, telling him to stay home. Their response is noteworthy because it isn't a rejection of David and it it could have been. Uh, Leading armies into battle, that was the primary role of kings. If this king is losing his edge, maybe it's time to get another king. They could have said, never again will you go out with us to battle. To be honest, not only are you no longer the giant slayer you used to be, but actually we have to allocate resources now to protect you. You once were our greatest asset, but now actually you're a bit of a liability on the battlefield. I'm just saying. Well, that would have been true, but tactless and insensitive. No, rather, the the men are not rejecting of David, but accepting of the situation, framing it in a new light, putting the situation in the best possible light, if you'll excuse the puns, saying that their motivation is to protect the lamp of Israel from being extinguished. Lamp of Israel. Um, the life of Israel, the light of Israel, the guiding light of Israel. The phrase speaks poetically of David's role beyond simply being the chief fighting military general. Uh, He is the one who guides them 
through dark times. He's the one whose wisdom and understanding is of greater saving value than simply his ability with the sword or his ability uh, to, to lead men into battle. Um, the, the phrase is a blessing to us because in helping us to understand who David was to Israel, who David was to his men, David the prototype Messiah, we of course gain insight into our king, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, Lamp of Israel. David, being king, was like Jesus being king because David was doing his best to obey God in everything, to model God in his character, and to make God known in his actions and decisions. So then, even though the men are forcing David into retirement as fighting king, he is still needed. He continues to be needed, just in a modified role. Um, this forms a fourth signpost from God for David that it is time to go. Uh, there is something else now that David should be attending to, administration from the capital city. Well, uh, in our text this morning, once again, we have a narrative in the Bible, a story in the Bible that actually doesn't mention God. But God's activity is clearly implied. And it's important to register this, because really, really, of course, the only person who can bring David's contract or job description as Messiah, um, uh, uh, the only person who can modify his job description as Messiah is God himself. It's God who hires and fires Messianic, messianic performance management belongs to the Lord. That, um, that David listens to his men, and he does, and from that we see that David understands that God was speaking through his men, even though his men were not prophets. David recognized the voice of God in the speech of his men, even though they were not claiming to be speaking in the name of the Lord. And this shouldn't surprise us, either to find it in the Bible or indeed occasionally, indeed perhaps even frequently, to see it in our own lives, God speaking through the people around us. Because, because it's what people were made for to represent God in his image and likeness. So David retires from the battlefield. The final verse, verse 22, is a summary statement. Verse 22, these four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Um, David, of course, still takes the credit as, as architect and overseer, 
But I think we can assume he's off-site from verse 17 onwards. Uh, he was there only for the first of the four battles. Well, um, today's text gives us some food for thought. In terms of the guidance of God in general, and perhaps more specifically, in terms of knowing when it is time to move on. Perhaps when it is time to retire, perhaps when it is time to move to something different, to a different job or occupation. As we prayerfully consider in the course of our working lives whether or not it's time to go or time to move on, we can ask ourselves questions arising from this text such as, can I still do the job? Can I still do it as, you, as well as I used to? Do I still have the energy or does this stuff just exhaust me? Do others need to carry the can for me? Am I perhaps a little bit of a liability? Am I needed in the same way that I used to be needed? Am I the only one who can get the job done? Or are now, thankfully, there are lots of people who can do the job just as well? Thirdly, am I listening to the hints or to the counsel of others? Is God speaking to me through the common sense counsel of my workmates, peers, subordinates or superiors? Um, for me personally, hints from others have been very important to me in working out that it was time to go. Um, some of these memories are actually quite painful for me, but on at least four occasions that I can think of, I left a place of employment because it was time for me to go, but I hadn't seen it. Painful memories, but in each case, the person who pointed it out to me, pointed out to me the obvious, did me a great favour. And fourthly, is there a different role I could be filling? Is there a different need for me now to answer? It is generally true that when God closes one door, he opens up another elsewhere. In most of the work transitions I've been through, I've had a clear sense of what God was calling me to do next. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we just have to let go and trust, even when we have no idea what God has for us next. So, I would also like us to consider David's reaction to all of this. As humiliating, galling, difficult as this might have all been for David, David's response, what is David's response? Well, David's response is actually a response of prayer, praise and worship. His response comes in the next chapter and we'll look at David at prayer next week. But the fact that David accepted what his subordinates had to say, he took it on the chin, did as they suggested, it is evidence of extraordinary humility. We, we may have, we, we might well have expected David to vigorously reject his men's counsel. 
Men often tie their own self-esteem and their own self-understanding, their own identity to their performance. Performance in the battlefield, performance in the boardroom, performance in the bedroom, performance in the balance sheet, whatever. We are what we do. Can you imagine Saul taking this lying down? Old King Saul. Saul, we remember, tried to kill David simply because he felt David made his own performance look second best. And Saul, of course, lived in murderous denial when Samuel told him that he'd been fired by God as king of Israel. It's, um, <clears throat> it's easy to imagine Saul responding to this situation, to this situation that David found himself. It would be easy to imagine Saul responding very vigorously. I've done more for this country in the first hundred days of my kingship than any other judge before me. I'm the anointed king of Israel. This is my anointing. This is my call. What I need from you is loyalty. Saul would not have been able to listen to the God-given wisdom of his men in much the same way that he was not able to listen to the God-given prophecies of Samuel. And why could he not listen? It was because he was already so little in his own eyes that, that any outside critique destroyed him. Saul, who is a little man in his own eyes, has to make himself big in the eyes of others as a matter of survival. But but likewise, we too, we we often expect that we'll honour God by operating out of a position of strength. We'll we'll work in, in line with our own gifts, talents and abilities. We will make God look good by looking good ourselves. But if that's true, what will, what will we do on the day that all such strength fades? David's humility transforms the situation. David's humility saves lives, including his own. David is in a position of weakness, but he doesn't resist that, and he doesn't deny that. David is in a position of vulnerability, but he doesn't work to counter that. And his response is really impressive. There's no insistence on rights. There's no sense of entitlement. And how incredibly refreshing is that? How incredibly unusual? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are In other words, are the teachable. Blessed are those who listen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Once, uh, when Jesus was speaking, some Jewish religious leaders uh, thought that he was being so arrogant in the things that he was saying that he deserved to die. Jesus had just said, My father is always at work. And to this very day, and I too am working. As far as they were concerned, in calling God Father, Jesus was making himself equal to God. But Jesus replied, 
Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd love to get a T-shirt printed uh, with, uh, the, with words on the front um, that, that say, By myself, I can do nothing. By myself, I can do nothing. Uh, that would be an interesting conversation starter, wouldn't it? The most influential and important person in history said, By myself, I can do nothing. Jesus never operated, as we might say, Jesus never operated in his own strength. Rather, in everything, he was aware of his weakness. He, he, he lived and worked and ministered in total reliance and in complete dependence upon his Father. Depending upon his Father's leading and guiding. Depending upon his Father's provision and protection. Depending upon his Father's strength and wisdom. And Paul began to understand some of this in a new way when his own performance was flagging. He had a, a thorn in his flesh. That's a vague figure of speech. We don't know exactly what he was referring to. But he had a thorn in his flesh, something that was slowing him down, something that was sapping his strength, something that was awfully painful and made him hobble when he should have been running. Three times Paul begged God to take it away. But Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a very difficult idea for us to get, especially when we're used to being accepted or rejected on the basis of competence and ability. So then David in our text today, he, he makes a transition that would throw most of us into crisis. The situation is humiliating. But by being humble, no insistence on rights, no sense of entitlement, by being humble, David allows the whole situation to move forward to develop rather than to disaster. And David can be humble because he knows he is a child of God, a friend of God, and that as a consequence, he cannot be lost. He cannot be lessened. The loss of power and authority in human realms is something to adjust to, but that doesn't threaten David's identity. He is able to adjust because he is humble. David, who therefore is actually a very big man in his own eyes, friend of God, I mean, <laughs> he can't get bigger than that. Uh, David, who is a big man in his own eyes, can therefore cope with being little or lessened in the eyes of others. And the Lord who saved him in the past will save him in the future. Therefore, 
My heart is glad, David prays. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Amen. And the Lord be with you all.